Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. Uh, we ended our series last week uh, as we walked through Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're going to use Nehemiah 9 as a jumping off point. And uh, this will be, uh, might be a little bit jarring, but in the last few weeks as we've walked through those Old Testament passages of Ezra and Nehemiah and those two stories, we, we've read big chunks of Scripture, um, really large sections, really chapters at a time. Today we're going to do something vastly different. Uh, we're going to take a little bit more of a, a, a synthetic approach, and we're going to look at a lot of different Scriptures in a lot of different places. So Nehemiah 9 will be the jumping off point, but we're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, look, I, th- I think as we walk out of this series to be able to sing together, um, how great thou art, this, this sounds like Nehemiah. It sounds like the way he describes his God, who is, and he would use this phrase consistently, great and awesome. You look to that, that passage in Nehemiah 4, and, and the people are alongside Nehemiah, and, and they're building the wall, and in the midst of the opposition that comes to them, he says, remember your God who is great and awesome. And we sing that with Nehemiah today. There's a deep connection between ourselves and these people that live in the Old Testament, in these times that seem so foreign to you and I. Um, here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to, I'd like to pose this question. Uh, how many of you have a hard time reading with and perhaps engaging at times the Old Testament? Challenging, right? It's, it's really, really challenging. And it's not just agrarian society, and it's not just that, hey, this was a long time ago. Some of the concepts, some of the things that we found there, even as we've walked through Ezra and Nehemiah together, um, it's just different than the day-to-day that I think you and I experience, especially as a part of what we know about the New Covenant. Um, but today, uh, I, I just want to be very clear, and, and this is, I think, formative in the life of our church to, to be able to say this. For as long as I can remember, we, we've, done, we, we've read uh, passages of Old Testament Scripture in the summer at Double Oak. Uh, it's one thing that, that we've, we've really sought to do, and I appreciate that, and I'm thankful that, that our church has always said, hey, we have a high view of Scripture. We, we, can, we value and love and cherish and, and will always consider the whole counsel of God. We're going to look at all the Scriptures. Um, but in the midst of that, I think there's often seasons where we just say, hey, I'm going to read the Old Testament for now, and then we just kind of get back away from it. Anybody feel a lot more comfortable in your quiet time and your devotion and as you seek the Lord in the New Testament? I would imagine that it's most of us, right? Well, if that's the case, if we've got a new covenant and we've seen all of these promises that we've been singing about week after week being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, why do we read the Old Testament? Why do we do this? Why do we read the Old Testament? Testament. As we walk out of a series in Ezra and Nehemiah, and just to kind of let you know where we're going to be next week, we're going to be looking into the New Testament, particularly in the book of 1 John, as we start to walk through the fall together with some, some new vision about who we are and who we're going to be in this season and beyond, and just talking about the gospel that is love that we find in 1 John, how it's articulated there in a very succinct and helpful way for us. I think it's really important for us to not miss this moment and recognize that the Old Testament isn't something we just look at during the summer that these scriptures are valuable and profitable for life in Christ. Four reasons today uh, that we read the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to be doing. Four reasons we read the Old Testament. We're going to look at a number of scriptures. Uh, I'm going to start with this. Reason number one, we read the Old Testament. 
We see the love of God for us and all people in his faithfulness to the unfaithful. Look below uh, at the scriptures if you have it open or the screen if you don't. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Uh, in, this, in this moment where the people of Israel are brought to a place, much like they've been in Ezra as well, confessing their sin before the temple is dedicated, then all that falls away uh, at the end in chapter 13 that we talked about last week. Uh, in these two verses, we get a really helpful picture of the theme of the Old Testament, the theme of the scriptures, both in the Old Covenant and the New, what God has done for his people in spite of who they are. This is Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. It says this, Many years you bore with them, this is Nehemiah speaking to the Lord about the people of Israel, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies... You did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious and merciful. Now, I want to be very candid with you. When I was growing up and in, in, in my early years of being exposed to and reading Scripture in middle years and latter years, and it's a, it's a fight and a struggle now at times to recognize and see that grace doesn't begin in the New Testament. That mercy doesn't begin when we see Jesus incarnate. But grace and mercy and love and the love that God has for all people has been since creation in Christ and through the Spirit. How many of you read the Old Testament and struggle to see these things? I struggle to see grace. I struggle to see mercy. I feel like it's wrath. I feel like it's law. I feel like it's all of these things that must be done. And yet we'll find out today that in the Old Testament that at the heart of God is love. Um, if you've seen those pictures or you feel like, hey, when I read the Old Testament, I don't, I don't see this gracious, merciful, compassionate God that is slow to anger, that is loving. I want to give you a few scriptures this morning um, to just kind of show you just throughout the Old Testament canon, God's grace and mercy. Exodus 34, 6. This is the Lord uh, speaking of Moses. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 23. This is after uh, Elisha has died. It says this, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. This is Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's the incredible, exciting thing that we come to find when we dive in, when we read the Old Testament. We see God to be gracious and loving and merciful, and all of those things that we find in Christ are not absent there. They are present there. We see God's goodness, his merciful love continually to an unfaithful people that they might come and know him. 
that they might have deep relationship with him. Think about what we walked through in Ezra and Nehemiah and all of the pictures of God's people and just the roller coaster ride that they live from, from the things of self-inflicted sin that they took upon themselves, the syncretism, the, the mixed marriages, the bringing other gods into a culture that was supposed to be devoted fully to Yahweh, to the opposition that they faced, not only in temple reconstruction, but also in the reconstruction of the wall in Jerusalem. In all of those things, we still find a God who does not forsake his people. Remember Nehemiah 5? Remember the passage where we see that there's oppression of the poor that's happening, that there's, there's a famine in a sense, and that there's a food shortage, and that, that people are literally selling one another back into slavery to one another. This is not even to Egyptians or to Canaanites or to others, but they're selling Jewish people, sons and daughters, to one another in order to eat, in order to live. They're forsaking even one another, and yet God does not forsake them. Here's the thing. Number one reason, and when we read the Old Testament, this is why we would do this. When we read the Old Testament, we see the holistic picture of God's goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his steadfast love to us. Here's the second thing. Why would we read the Old Testament? Because we see the same God speaking to his people through the prophets that he's spoken to us in Jesus. It's the same God that speaks through the prophets that now is spoken to us in Jesus. Here's how the writer of Hebrews describes it. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and it's how this book begins. The writer says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what is incredible that's happening here in this moment as the writer of Hebrews elicits the reality that, that God has always been speaking. God has always been speaking to people. The mode or the method perhaps is different, but the message has always been the same. The message is that he is gracious and he's slow to anger and that he's merciful, and that he's loving. And he longs for people to experience him and have relationship with him that they might live. That they might live. So the various ways, the various things that have happened in the past, the parting of the Red Sea, an exodus out of Egypt, freedom from slavery, this is a picture of what will come in Christ. This is how God spoke then. God speaks through the prophets, and as Nehemiah said in chapter 9, and verses 30 and 31, through his Spirit, it's by God's Spirit that God communicated with his people, that gave his message of love and goodness to his people through the very prophets. While we see Jesus speaking to us now, or God rather speaking to us now through his son, Jesus, we cannot forget and fail to recognize that God has always spoken. Since speaking creation into existence, he has spoken to people of himself. For us, it's in Jesus. 
And at this time, we need to recognize that what Ezra and Nehemiah experienced was not a different God. No, it's the same God they were just hearing in a different way. That has come to fruition and fullness in Jesus Christ. Here's a third reason. Why do we read the Old Testament? If you and I fail to read the Old Testament, we will fail to understand what Christ has done in fulfilling the law and the prophets and truly fail to see how God keeps his promises to his people. What does it all hinge on? What's what's the point of this all? This is a a series of verses I know you're going to be familiar with. This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and it says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is Jesus speaking. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Everything depends on this. Everything hangs on this. To love God, heart, soul, and mind. What is Jesus saying? Where does this come from? Jesus is echoing the Shema. He's echoing this, this prayer, this writing of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. What Jesus is saying in a new way, with fulfillment in his, himself, is that it's been about a relationship with God from the beginning. And that that becomes full in him. Why is this important? He's saying life from the beginning is to love God. And then subsequently others. This is life to be wholly devoted, completely in love with, and given to, and surrendered to God himself. Jesus says this when he's questioned. Um, Look, here's the reality. Why harp on this? Why continually say, look, this is the point. We've got to get back to the point, get back to basics. Here's the thing. This is about loving God. Life itself is about experiencing and knowing and loving God with heart, soul, and mind. You know that to some degree. You know that. And yet you and I fail to live it often. Why is that? Because we're... A lot like our Israelite brothers and sisters. Here's who the Israelites were. These people that were steeped in polytheistic cultures for generations. Think about the people that they lived among and lived around. From their roots in Canaan to the long years they spent in Egypt to traveling through Canaanite territory in the wilderness. They've always been surrounded by these people that are worshiping many different gods. Mackey says it this way, that, that Moses demonstrates that loyalty and obedience and love to their one true God is the only way to life. And this is why Moses, this is why Ezra, this is why Nehemiah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and every prophet and everyone who spoke God's law were so concerned with the failures of Israel. This is not a people who's breaking some rules. This is not a people who just kind of can't get it all together. This is a people who's failing to love the God that loves them. 
who's failing to be completely devoted. And this is how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. All that God has said in the Old Testament is pointing to covenant fulfillment in Jesus Christ as the only one who could love God with heart, soul, and mind. This is what Ezra is pointing to in his reading of the law, the teaching. Everything centers back toward these, these marriages that are dissolved that we see uh, in, in Ezra chapter 10 and in Nehemiah chapter 13. These things are happening because there's spiritual adultery taking place. They're failing to love God with heart, soul, and mind. When we look to the Old Testament scriptures, we see that Jesus has done this. This is how Jesus proclaims himself in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what Jesus is doing in this moment to the Pharisees and those that have come to him on the heels of a miraculous healing and are questioning his ministry and his life and his teaching and all that he's doing. Jesus plainly says to them, you come to the scriptures because you think in them you have life. They're treating the scriptures, these particular sects and sets of Jews that are, that are living the very letter of the law, they're keeping commands far and above even what God's word in and of itself requires. They're living these lives of optic righteousness. They're doing all the right things, and yet they miss the point that this is written of Jesus that, that the life is in him, not in the things that they do. And the things that they do should flow out of that Shema, that Deuteronomy 6, that what Jesus prays, that love of loving God with heart and with soul and with mind. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. Look at what he says in, in verse 46 as well. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. It's Moses that writes of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And then let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Something I think is really, really helpful to kind of draw at this point a little more. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God for what he's accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. In his life, he fulfills the very law, the very prophets. He fulfills this that everything hinges upon. 
Loving God with all of oneself and loving neighbor. Jesus does this for us. When we read the Old Testament, we see Jesus as one who has fulfilled the law and the prophets and who points us to God keeping his promises. And fourth and finally, why do we read the Old Testament? Um, This is incredibly important for us to see. We read the Old Testament so that we can look in the mirror. We read the Old Testament so that we have a very clear picture of who God is and who we are not. We read the Old Testament so that we can see ourselves as sinners who have failed to keep the law but are offered new life in Jesus Christ. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. Um, You're going to be really, really familiar with verse 23 uh, but placing it in context and just looking at what, what Paul is, is writing and what he's saying, this is what he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law reveals our sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness, this trusting in Jesus and faith. And it says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Um, And there's something underneath this good news in this proclamation, in this place, that helps us to see who we are and who God is in the deep love, that gracious, merciful, steadfast, compassionate, pursuing love that he has for us. And how the Old Testament scriptures point to him. Um, Somebody much smarter than me says it this way. Um, Now there's a massive assumption underneath this gospel. The gospel that we just read together. And the assumption is this. There is law. The creator of the universe has revealed his will. And it is law. And when it is not done, there's real guilt and real condemnation and real punishment. So the existence of law in the universe, the revealed will of God, creates the foundation for law-breaking and guilt and law-keeping and righteousness and court and judge and justification and condemnation. All of these great things rest on one assumption, that there is law. That there's law. Even looking back into Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament, when we see those words law, it really does fundamentally also mean teaching. That there is teaching that the prophets, that those who read the law, that these who have, who have led God's people, 
these Abrahams, these Isaacs, these Moses, these Aaron's, these Ezra's, and Nehemiah's. There's teaching about what life is. And life is to know God. To have eternal life through Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament together, we get to look in the mirror. And we get to see pictures, or images rather, of people who are struggling to depend They're struggling to believe in. They're struggling to trust in the God who has promised that all things will work to the good. They're struggling to believe that. They see it dimly. They don't see it as fully as you and I see it. There's a famous guy who says it like this, that that in the Old Testament, the gospel is a bud. And then in the New Testament, it's full flower. We see everything come alive. But let's not forsake reading the Old Testament together because when we do, this incredible, amazing thing happens. The law convicts us. That doesn't sound incredible or amazing, especially by the looks on your faces. The law convicts us. No, it's not fun. Those two things aren't aren't synonymous because it is amazing that when we read the Old Testament, you and I get to see our brokenness and our pain and our law-breaking, and then we get to look to the Scriptures and see that the righteousness that we can have has come in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's be people that continually read the Old Testament scriptures, to see these truths, to recognize and see that God is gracious. We find that in the Old Testament because this is part of God's story for his people, his people of which you and I are a part. So let's read and seek to read and commit to read the Old Testament together to see God's love for his people, to see that the same God that was speaking then through the prophets has spoken now in Jesus Christ, to see that Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He has kept God's promises. And for us to see who we are as promise breakers and to see Jesus Christ as the promise keeper. Amen? This is good reason for us to read that word. So here's what I'd like for us to do as as we kind of draw to a close today. And you're shocked. I know you are because you're like, this is way short. Um, And it is, but it's intentional um, because I want us to spend some time this morning um, as we're led in worship and and we sing about uh, very clearly the promises that God has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we do that, I'd love to take a few moments, um, even just packs instrumentally, just to allow everyone, all of us in here, to think upon this God that we've seen, particularly in Ezra and Nehemiah of recent, but in, in the Old Testament, bringing everything to come to fruition in Jesus Christ. We've sung this song, we've dwelt upon these words for weeks and weeks and weeks. We, we've sung this song called Promises. And, and we have sought to meditate on with one another what it means to trust in the promises of God. Um, 
Because I think you find yourself today, like I do, in either one of two places. One, who, who, one of which is that, hey, well, I'm, I'm trusting in God's promises. I've seen these things come and happen and take place, and they've come to fruition. Or, hey, I'm struggling to believe in God's promise. And my life is in a very challenging place. That Paul can write in 2 Corinthians that there are light and momentary pains and afflictions. And for what you're walking through right now, it may not feel light and momentary. It might feel heavy and permanent. But the delight and the picture that we get in the Old Testament and what we see is God continually pursue and be faithful to his people. You need to know that that God has given his son for you. He so deeply loved you. Here's what that steadfast love, that mercy, that graciousness looks like. That he gave his only son. That you and I could believe in him and experience eternal life. That we could trust and experience and know this God that's created us. And loved us with this steadfast love that we can't fathom, that we can't imagine. And the beautiful opportunity that we have this morning is to look back to a people that say, hey, I don't see everything in front of me. I don't see everything in front of me. We're not that different than them today. We don't see everything that's in front of us. I just want my kid to go to school. <laughs> uh, like I just want my kid to go to school. You know, and experience uh, the opportunity uh, to, to, to know other children and to be educated and to socially develop and have fun. Um, and of course, we love our children and we want to keep them safe and we want to take care of them. Um, there's all kinds of stuff where I'm like, God, what is happening? What, what, are, we, what are we doing? Where are we? What in the world is going on out there? There's just one thing that we can do is we can look back to the past and these people who saw with their own eyes, this is what we'll see in 1 John next week, who saw with their own eyes this this good God, this God whose hand was upon them in the midst of stuff that is wild and crazy and attack and pain and all the stuff they walked through. God's faithful. He's faithful and he keeps his promises My hope would be that as we've walked out of Ezra and Nehemiah, that that we could dialogue with one another, that we could recognize and see that this God is great and awesome. And he's deeply loved us, no matter where we find ourselves this week or next week or the week after. He will be faithful to us. He's been faithful to us in Jesus Christ. Um, let's just take a few moments, and if you're willing, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And just think through the ways God has kept his promises to you. How he's revealed his goodness, his awesomeness, his gracious love to you. And would you ask that he would take the remembrance of that goodness, 
that you're experiencing right now and that it would just draw your heart close to him. And that you would love him. heart and soul and mind. And that you would love your neighbor as yourself and demonstrate the gospel of grace to them. So God, this morning, we long, Father, to be people that love you. God, this righteousness has been imputed, has been given to us. Father, we do not deserve it. We've been faithless, and, and, and God, you've been faithful. Faithful to give your son that we might have life. So God, this morning, as we reflect on your promises, would you draw us into worship? Would you help us to see how great your faithfulness has been to us? God, and would you direct our heart, mind, our soul, Father, our very eyes to Jesus? In Christ's name, amen.